Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Here's the deal with, uh, with this, this series. We're going to be traveling throughout the book of Isaiah uh, for all four weeks of it. And um, the reason we're doing that is because uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a, a Jewish prophet who lived about 700 years before Jesus came to humanity. And uh, in, his, in his work, in this book, uh, he prophesies about this messianic king, this person who will fulfill God's redemptive plan for humanity. And so we're going to look at all these different moments. All the, I know that they're over there figuring out the mic thing. Don't look at them, look at me. Uh, that, that we'll look at all these different moments um, in Isaiah where um, Isaiah prophetically tells of God's plan to bring this Messiah to humanity. And we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills all of those prophetic promises. It's going to help you see scripture in like a way that maybe you've never seen scripture before. And it's going to build your faith in the truth of the text and the power of God's word and help you to see just how incredible Jesus is. This verse in 2 Corinthians is our, is our theme verse for the series. Let's put it up and you'll see why. This is what Paul in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says to the church in Corinth, um, 700, almost 800 years at this point after Isaiah, he says this, that all the promises of God find their yes in him. The him there is Jesus. That all the promises of God, all the ones that we're going to read throughout this series in Isaiah, and, but it's, it's not just limited to Isaiah. All throughout the Old Testament, you have these messianic promises and all of them find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Jesus that we utter, we say our amen to God for his glory. Now that word amen means true. So what Paul is saying in that verse, he's saying every single promise of God has its yes, has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we in faith, because we recognize that all God's promises are yes in him, we go true. That is true. And that right there is salvation. It's not you working your way into relationship or favor with God. It's looking at God's promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And our role is to go, yep, that's true. That's the truth. That's a fact. And in that, in that moment of faith and in that life of faith, we, uh, we receive our salvation as a gift from God. So we're going to see today those promises of God fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Here you come. Mel, you are a champion. Give it up for Mel. One, two. There we go. I love it. The title of today's message is called Looking for the King of the World. Looking for the King of the Girl. Why don't, world. Why don't you write that down? And um, what I want to do to begin is just kind of give us a, a high-level survey of the book of Isaiah, just from like a 30,000-foot view, what's going on in this book, because it will help us understand the specific promises and texts that we're going to read. The most important thing for you to understand about Isaiah is the backdrop that is behind him. In other words, the context in which he is prophesying. If you don't understand Isaiah's context, then you won't understand his, prom his prophecies. You won't understand the promises that he's uh, sharing with, with the nation and the warnings that he's giving to the nation of Israel. Now, the backdrop of Isaiah is obviously, in broad summary, it's the story of Israel. That God first calls in Genesis 12, this man named Abraham, and says to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and through that nation, I'm going to bring blessing to the whole world. 
That nation, of course, is Israel. And God had a purpose for Israel. Israel's purpose was a worldwide mission. Their mission was to be a light unto the nations. It was to be a people that other nations in the world who were trapped in sin and trapped in idolatry could look to and say, wow, I want to be a part of that people because they're experiencing God's blessing. They're experiencing righteousness and holiness and, and their life is, is separate from all of this decay and destruction that we experience in our pagan societies. That was God's plan for Israel, but Israel failed in that plan. And they themselves gave into idolatry. They themselves were overcome by sin. And so they were not able to fulfill that world by mission that God gave to them. Fast forward a little bit from Abraham, you have a man named David. David is the second king of Israel, but by the time he becomes king, Israel already has a long history of failure and they've already rebelled against God uh, quite deeply. But David's a good king and God makes a promise to David. He, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a really a key thing to understand Isaiah's worldview. God says to David, I'm going to raise up a son. I'm going to bring out of your lineage an offspring who's going to be king. And that king is going to lead Israel back into faithfulness. And the result of that faithfulness will be the success of the mission that I have for Israel to be a light unto the nations. That's God's promise to David. And so when Isaiah is prophesying um, uh, several generations after David was king, Isaiah is prophesying with the hope that that son of David would be revealed and that he would sit on the throne and that he would indeed lead Israel back into faithfulness and that Israel would succeed in God's purpose for them to be a light unto the nation. So that's everything that's in Isaiah's mind as he's prophesying to the people. Now, his, his work is comprised of two sections. And I'm just, I understand this is, might be a little bit heady for some of us, but it's important that you have this foundation to really understand what we're talking about. So Isaiah's work is comprised of two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 39. The second section is chapters 40 to 66. In chapters 1 to 39, Isaiah is uh, calling out Israel's sin. Um, he's warning them about the result of that sin. And he's describing this messianic king who was one day going to come. Um, and in the second section, chapters 40 to 66, he starts describing that king in much more specific detail, but he does it in a really unexpected, unusual way. He says that this king is going to be God's servant who's going to suffer for God's people, which doesn't sound very kingly. So that's kind of odd language to Isaiah's contemporaries. They don't really understand what Isaiah is talking about here, that this king is going to be God's servant who is going to suffer for God's people. And after suffering, he will lead every single person who follows him, Isaiah says, both Jew and non-Jew, Gentile. He will lead them into what Isaiah describes as nothing short of like brand new creation. So Isaiah's work is filled with this messianic hope and this, this son of David who be a king who's going to lead Israel into success with their mission. Now, when, when Isaiah begins his prophetic career, um, there's a couple of things that have already happened. Isaiah, uh, sorry, Israel has already been split into two kingdoms. So you have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. And from Isaiah's point of view, Israel in the north is a foregone conclusion. Their rebellion against God is so deep, they have no hope. And so he's not even prophesying to them because he thinks it's, it's only a matter of time before their enemies come and destroy them and God hands them over to basically the consequences of their sin. But Isaiah, at the start of his prophetic career, does have a little bit of hope that Judah, the southern kingdom, could still be redeemed. 
and that they might still repent of their sin. And a key to that repentance is God raising up this king to lead them back into faithfulness so that they can avoid the destruction that the northern kingdom is about to uh, experience. And um, there's a moment in the first section in chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah where it seems like maybe we found the guy. And his name is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a pretty decent king for the kingdom of Judah. And he was generally concerned about righteousness. Um, There's a moment when the armies of Assyria are about to march on the southern kingdom of Judah and Hezekiah, rather than like allying himself with other pagan nations, what he does is he gets on his knees and he begins to pray. And so he exemplifies this, this righteous trust in God. And as a result of that, God delivers them from Assyria and supernaturally the, the army uh, dies. But then right after that, Hezekiah makes this really grave error. And this envoy from Babylon comes into the kingdom of Judah and they've come to spy out the wealth of Judah. But Hezekiah sees it as a political opportunity to ally himself with a really powerful nation so that the next time an enemy comes, they'll have relationship to lean upon. In other words, he did the exact opposite of what he had just done, which was lean upon God. Now he wants to lean upon this evil nation of Babylon. That happens in chapter 39, which is the end of the first section of Isaiah's work. And you can read it in that chapter. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and he asks him about it. And Hezekiah is like, yeah, I let him in. I showed him all of our wealth. And I, Isaiah says, what's going to happen? It's not going to happen in your lifetime, but in your children's lifetime, Babylon's going to come. They're going to sack our city and um, we're going to be cut down. We're going to be destroyed. And our, our immediate to midterm future is looking pretty bleak. That's how the first section of Isaiah comes to a close. And throughout that, though, throughout chapters 1 to 3, you have all these moments of these prophetic glimpses of hope, of this, of this one who will be the righteous king, who will lead Israel into success in their mission to be a blessing to the nations. We're actually going to look at three of those today, and I know that sounds like a lot, but it's going to go quite quickly. The first glimpse that we're going to look at has to do with the impact of the Messiah, of Jesus, upon the nations as he launches the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in the earth. The second prophetic glimpse has to do specifically with the Messiah himself. And the third prophetic glimpse has to do with the impact of the Messiah, not just upon people, but upon all of creation. What I'm going to do today is a little bit different than I normally would do. We're going to read these passages of Isaiah, and I'm going to, I'm going to do what's called exegesis. I'm going to draw the meaning out of them as we go. So this is going to feel like a little bit like a Bible study, but I'm, you're going to get a, like a cosmic view of the scriptures today that's just going to open up your eyes to see how amazing the promises are. Amen? Amen. Oh, I love it when a church claps about exegesis. How cool is that? <laughs> I've done my job well. So the first one is in Isaiah chapter 2. Verses 1 to 5, it says this, that the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, so normally you hear words, but Isaiah saw a word, which means this is like a prophetic vision that Isaiah is having. The word that he saw concerning Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of that kingdom. It's the city in which Isaiah lives. This word shall come to pass in the latter days. So that's a really, really key phrase that gives uh, it gives a, a time to everything that's about to follow in this prophecy. The latter days is language for the time of fulfillment where the Messiah has come. 
So Isaiah is prophesying and uh, destruction for the northern kingdom is a foregone conclusion. That's coming. We're going to learn by chapter 39 that Judah is going to experience the consequences of their sin as well. But there will come a time in the latter days where God's going to fulfill his promise to David and before David, his promise to Abraham, and honestly before Abraham, his promise to Adam and Eve. What's going to happen in those latter days is this, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to that mountain and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Like, could you imagine Babylonians saying to one another, hey, let's go to the mountain of the Lord together to the house of the God of Jacob, which is another name for Israel, that he, God, may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, which is another name for the mountain where Jerusalem was, shall go forth God's law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, God, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. In other words, Isaiah is prophesying a time when God would be the God, not just of the Israelites, he'd be the God, he'd be the ruler of people from every single nation in the world. That's what's going to happen, Isaiah says, in the latter days, in the time of the Messiah. Now, he uses this really specific geographic language. He says, listen, the mountain of God is going to become the highest of all the mountains, and the hill of God is going to be lifted up above all the other hills. Now, he's not speaking literally there, okay? Isaiah is not saying that one day there's going to be a moment where this mountain, where Jerusalem is just all of a sudden, like growing out of the ground, and it's going to become taller than Mount Everest. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. He's using prophetic language, which is metaphoric. It's symbolic. And what he's talking about is that there will come a day when worldwide significance and honor will be granted to Israel because the Messiah has come through them, bringing salvation to the entire world. In other words, there will be a day when people from every single tribe, nation, language on earth will stop looking to salva- looking for salvation from all of these other places and things. In other words, their eyes will turn to Jesus, who is the Messiah, who comes through the Jewish people. He will become the chief of all the mountains to which all of the nations will flow. What we find is that Isaiah is not prophesying the rise of political Israel. Isaiah is prophesying the rise of the anointed one of Israel who would accomplish all God's purposes for the sake of the world. In other words, where Israel failed in their worldwide mission, this king, this Messiah would succeed. So not only is Jesus the faithful king of Israel, he is faithful Israel itself. So when Jesus says in in the book of John, I am the true vine, what he's saying is I am Israel. Uh, In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vine. And Jesus says, no, I'm the vine. And I'm the one from whom the fruitfulness of all the nations is going to come. So he is the fulfillment of faithful Israel itself, through whom God will bless every single nation on the earth. Jesus makes this declaration about himself in John 12, verse 32, in a very subversive way, connecting back to this Isaiah promise, this prophecy. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Now, when Jesus uses the phrase lifted up, he's referencing how he's going to die. In fact, the very next verse in John 12 is about, it connects that dot. This is Jesus talking about how he's going to be hoisted up on a cross. And Jesus, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up on that cross, I'm going to draw all people to myself. It's the same kind of language that Isaiah employs here in chapter uh, 2 when he says that people from all nations are going to be drawn to this mountain as it is lifted up. Is it any wonder that Jesus' crucifixion happened on a hill called Calvary, which was in Jerusalem, a city set atop the mountain called Zion? It is not a coincidence at, at all. And, and to that Christ, on that cross, atop that hill, on top of that mountain, God the Father has been drawing people for two millennium from, from nations all around the world to that cross because Jesus was lifted up and nations have been streaming to that cross for 2,000 years because at the cross there is the only place where there's the forgiveness of sins. Only at the cross do sinners get transformed into sin. Saints only at the cross do humans receive the spirit of the almighty God. Only at the cross is there healing for humanity's brokenness and the, the walls of hostility that exist between tribes and nations crumble and come down at the cross as people step out of one lineage and into the lineage of the family of God taking their seat at the table that has been reserved for them since before time eternal. That is what's fulfilled. And Jesus, and there at that place in the family of God, Isaiah says, going back to the prophecy that they, the people, part of the family of God, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against na nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the result of people who have received the gift, the free gift of God's forgiveness for their sins is that they become a people who rather than always seeking vengeance for the wrongs that have been done to them, no, instead of that, what they do is they freely offer the gift that has been freely given to them. That forgiven people become forgiving people. And that is the manifestation of the gospel amongst God's people, the reality in which the church lives in between first and second coming of Jesus Christ, that we begin to live as a new kind of people, a new kind of humanity. When Jesus does return for his church, there will be the final perfection of God's people. You and I will be fully sanctified and purified of our sin. Jesus will bring judgment upon evil once and for all. So there will be no swords, no spears, no war to speak of because all, all hatred and, and all violence of humanity will be done away with for good and all God's people will be under God's government himself. And that's what Isaiah gives us the picture of. Here in chapter two, we have this prophetic picture of, of the kingdom. But when you fast forward to chapter nine, you get this prophetic picture of the king himself where Isaiah says in verses six and seven, for to us, a child is born. Now remember, Isaiah is still talking about a time in the latter days. This is future, but he's so sure of the fulfillment of this prophecy that he can speak in present tense and say, to us, a child 
is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So remember that the backdrop for Isaiah is that he has this, this kingly hope and he wants it to be Hezekiah, but we learn by chapter 39 that it's not going to be Hezekiah. And the reason that Isaiah wants this king to be revealed and for him to sit on the throne is because it's a really key component for the nation of Israel repenting of their sin, returning to faithfulness to God, rejecting their idolatry, and fulfilling their purpose, their mission to be allied unto the nations. Um, and that's the only way that Judah is going to avoid their own self-imposed destruction. And so that's the king that Isaiah is talking about here prophetically in chapter 9. Except then he starts to say some really strange things about this king. He calls him wonderful counselor. He calls him mighty God. He calls him everlasting father. He calls him prince of peace. And again, this kind of language would have been like so strange and out of place to Isaiah's contemporaries because the message is abundantly clear that from Isaiah's point of view, this king isn't gonna be just pretty good or pretty wise or pretty powerful and do a pretty good job. No, the message is that this king will be nothing short of divine. And what Isaiah is doing is he's calling God's people to lift up their expectation to expect not just a mere human king who will do a fairly good job getting God's people back on track. No, he's saying, I want you to expect not just the king of Israel. I want you to expect the king of the world. And this king is going to come into the world as a child in humility. But make no mistake, he is both Lord and leader over all of creation, over God's people. In other words, Isaiah is saying that we should not just be looking for the son of David we should be looking for the son of God and we need to lift our expectations for how God go is going to fulfill this promise what Isaiah is doing is he's developing a prophetic statement that he made back in chapter 7 and verse 14 this really random statement that Isaiah makes off the cuff in a conversation uh, he says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel and Emmanuel means God with us what makes that statement so powerful is that in that time in that moment Isaiah was actually speaking to the current king of Judah whose name was Ahaz and Ahaz was a wicked king and it was very clear that Ahaz was not this, this son of David who was going to lead the people of Israel back into faithfulness. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, listen, there's a guy that's coming. He's not just going to be the son of David. He's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be God with his people. That's the kind of expectation that Isaiah wants the nation of Israel to have about how God's going to fulfill this promise. You fast forward to the New Testament and the apostle John does such a brilliant job of connecting the dots of this promise to the arrival of Jesus. In John 1.14, he says that the Word, capital W, speaking of the Son of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a couple really incredible things about that verse. Something that you have to zero in on is that phrase that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase dwelt among us literally translated means tabernacled. Uh, he pitched his tent. 
And John, who is a faithful Jewish man, he's very familiar with the, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. He's uh, correlating the arrival of Christ to uh, the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the tent that God instructed Moses and the Israelites to build while they were in the wilderness. It was the place where God's presence would dwell and Israel would camp around the tent where God's presence was. And even when they came into the promised land, the tabernacle came with them. And this was like the central uh, place, the most important place for Israel because it's where God's presence was. And so when John says that the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, he's saying that there's, there's a new person, not just a place, but a person in whom is God's presence dwelling in the midst of humanity. But you go a little bit deeper, and one of the things that you realize is that the tabernacle was designed very specifically. In other words, God gave specific instruction to Moses about how to build the tabernacle and what kind of garments the priests were to wear when they were working in the tabernacle. And one of the images that you see as you study it is that the tabernacle was symbolic of the Garden of Eden. It's very botanical in its design. So when God gives the design for the tabernacle, he's, he's reenacting his original creation project, this place of life where, where Adam and Eve were meant to rule with righteousness and justice and extend God's creation project around the world. But they failed in that mission. And so God is going again with Israel and the tabernacle is like this mini picture of Eden. And they're supposed to go into the promised land and they're supposed to rise as a nation and they're supposed to be a blessing to the nations, a light unto the world, extending God's creation project 2.0 around the world, but they failed in their mission. And so when John, when you get to the New Testament and John says that he came and he tabernacled among us, he's not just saying that Jesus was the personification of the presence of God in the earth. He's saying, no, this is God's new creation project. And Jesus died on the cross and then sowed himself as a seed into the ground as all seeds must go into the ground to die. But the seed does not just stay in the ground. It bursts forth from the soil and flowers as a plant and new creation. The garden grows again. And now Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the place where the nations will not stream. And he doesn't stop there. He says, my followers also are the light of the world. And that light is still shining. That city on a hill is still glowing and people are still flowing to that nation. It's called the church and it's called salvation and that's the new creation project that you and I are caught up in. And that's what Isaiah sees in prophetic form. It's why he can say, listen to me, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. The reason there can be no end to the increase of his government and his reign is because Jesus didn't just come to redeem humans out of a broken creation. No, he came to redeem creation itself so that all things would be made new. For this reason, Paul, the apostle, again in the New Testament, says in his letter to the church in Rome, in Romans eight nineteen, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is, creation itself looks forward eagerly to the day when Christ returns for his church and God's people look at him face to face and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, they will be transformed into his image and in that moment, creation itself will be redeemed and restored and renewed as well. This is exactly the kind of language that Isaiah uses to describe God's redemptive project, his restoration project. And he's using images and, and language that is, that is available to him 
as an ancient person who lived 700 years before Christ. He describes it the very best way he can in this third and final prophecy in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10. The band can come and we'll close in just a moment. Isaiah says this, listen, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, Jesse was the father of David. And so again, Isaiah has this, this backdrop in mind that God's made this promise to David from David's lineage, he's gonna bring forth the king. And he also is now expecting Israel not to make it. And so they're gonna be, they're gonna be attacked by Babylon. They're gonna be exiled. But God, notice the language, God's gonna leave a stump. And he's not gonna uproot the tree of Israel completely. There's still gonna be a stump there left. And there's gonna come forth from that, that stump, the stump of Jesse, not even just David, but David's dad, a shoot is gonna come forth and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So now Isaiah, he personifies this, this branch. This is a person we're talking about. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So in other words, this king is gonna be completely filled with and guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what Isaiah is describing there. The reason I counted those descriptions out for you is because the book of Revelation describes the Holy Spirit like this, as the seven spirits before the throne of God. And seven is the number of descriptions that Isaiah gives to the spirit that's gonna rest upon this messianic king here. This king is not gonna judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In other words, this king is not gonna depend upon appearances to judge with true justice. He's not gonna judge by external factors. No, no, he's gonna know what's in the heart of people. In fact, that's what the book of John says, that he did not entrust himself into the hands of people because he knew what was in people's hearts. He shall judge uh, and decide with equity based upon what he sees in the heart. He will know whether or not somebody truly believes his good news, his gospel, because they recognize their own spiritual poverty and their, their own need of salvation. That's how Jesus draws out the meaning of this text, even in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, when it says, listen, blessed are the poor in spirit, not those who think they are righteous. Blessed are, are the meek, not those who think they have it all together and are all powerful. No, Jesus looks at the condition of the heart and knows when somebody says, I need saving. And Jesus says, those are the people who are going to inherit the earth. Those are the people who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the people who are going to be, uh, who are going to cross over into eternity instead of lost in darkness. These are the truly righteous and the truly meek. And everybody who disbelieves, these are Isaiah's words, not mine. Everybody who disbelieves and rejects this king are those who are considered wicked. And they will not be able to save themselves like they thought they would. They won't be able to save themselves through their, their means of self-righteousness, through the means of their riches, through the means of their, their self-rule and the rejection of God. They will not be able to grant themselves their own salvation. And so Isaiah says they are going to be destroyed. 
And while this might sound a little intense, we have to understand that the destruction of the wicked is just as key to the new creation as the restoration of God's people. Because in the new creation, you cannot have rebellion because I don't know if you know this, but rebellion is what got us into this midst of this mess in the first place. And so when the king comes, he comes not just to purify the believer, he comes to put away the, the person who rebels as well. And he ushers in new creation. And Isaiah describes that new creation like this. He says, the wolf, continuing in Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and adder was a snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, in the same way that earlier in chapter 2, Isaiah is not talking about a literal growing mountain here, he's probably not also talking about cows and bears snuggling together, okay? He's using prophetic language to, to symbolize the kind of new creation that is going to come forth using the language that is available to him as an ancient person. And if you notice, each picture is, is of a predator and the most vulnerable version of its prey living in total harmony. And what Isaiah is describing is a new creation reality where there will be no pain, no sickness, no war, no death, no hatred, no revenge, no more tears of sorrow. Though something tells me we'll cry plenty tears of joy. It will be life without suffering. And Isaiah says that in that day, listen to this, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Now notice all of a sudden in the same prophecy, we've gone from the branch of Jesse to the root of Jesse. Because Isaiah wants us to see that this king isn't just going to be in the lineage of David, he's also going to be pre-existent to David and pre-existent to David's father Jesse. This king is coming from time eternal and inserting himself into the human reality and the human existence to bring about this new creation that our souls are so desperate to experience. This is why Jesus in John 17 5 can pray this prayer. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's what Jesus can pray as he looks ahead to his cross. And this is the glory that Jesus would receive through his death and his, and his resurrection. And it's the glory that he invites us into as part of new creation and as part of the kingdom of God being established in the earth. And here's the deal. Everybody's invited. And that's what Isaiah makes clear. As he closes his prophecy, he says, Of him, of this king, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt. These are Israel's enemies, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Those nations are very significant because uh, they're included in what biblical scholars call the table of nations in Genesis 10 and 11. And in Genesis 10 and 11, you have the story of the Tower of Babel where all these nations, basically all the world's population, rebels against God. They build this tower. They want to have their own construct, their own rule, their own law, and they're rebelling against God. And so in Genesis 10 and 11, God disinherits the nations of the world. And then guess what happens in Genesis 12? He starts over again with a man named Abraham. 
And through Abraham comes the nation of Israel who are meant to be a light unto those nations that God had to disinherit because of their evil, because of their wickedness. And here Isaiah is saying that the result of this messianic king is that God is going to finally reach the people from even the nations who have been most rebellious against God are going to stream up to the mountain of the Lord and say, come on, let us go up to Zion. Let us go up to Jerusalem. Let us walk in His ways. Let us walk in His path. Let us live in His righteousness. And that is the beauty of the gospel that nobody's too far. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.